Welcome to Business Week Talks Podcast. I'm Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. And this week, we got a chance to catch up with Chuck Robbins, the Cisco chairman and CEO. So much to get into, very much in the news. So we got to talk a little bit about trade, a little right. bit about tariffs, what his customers are saying. Right. And we also talked about, of course, about Huawei and what it means in terms of the U.S. ban on the company. Does it provide opportunities for the company? What does it mean to the rollout of 5G? Also got a little bit inside the company, his management style, what he worries about even what he might be doing if he weren't leading this big company. Here's Chuck. So great to have you here with us. It's great to be here. We got to talk about stuff in the news, and I know you've been talking a lot about it, uh, the U.S.-China trade deal. You guys said on your earnings call that you have taken moves to kind of deal with those 25% uh, tariff increases. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, about eight months ago when all this began, uh, our teams proactively started thinking about it, and we actually made the statement that we're gonna, we have three you know, parts of our strategy around this. One, we're going to continue to dialogue with the administration to try to influence the outcome. Secondly, we're going to optimize our supply chain because we have a globally distributed supply chain that we have the capacity to move things around on a, on a you know, regular basis. And our team does that as part of doing business. That's just what they do. And then the third was, you know, if we can't mitigate it, then we'll, we'll obviously pass through pricing. And our teams did an amazing job over the last eight months and actually put us in a position where the latest 25% really had a pretty nominal effect uh, from a pricing perspective that we had to pass through because they did such a good job of optimizing our supply chain. Is it more difficult, though, the longer this goes on? Well, my bigger worry is if we move to the next phase, the, the concern is not necessarily for the impact on us at Cisco. Uh, my concern is more on the macro and what it does to customers' overall sentiment. Uh, that's the bigger concern for me. And what are you hearing from your customers at this point? Because I feel like now, if we listen to earnings calls, we listen to interviews with your peers, they're starting to think about it, talk about it in a little more meaningful way. Well, I, you know, I've heard, I hear the same things you're hearing. I mean, I, I heard we've we've seen some of the retail discussions that have happened over the last couple of weeks. So I think that the reality of company's inability to optimize supply chain for whatever reasons, there are various reasons that they can't, I think, is becoming the bigger issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the impact on either the company or the consumer is is going to have a drag on the market if we don't you know, do something. You've talked about diversifying your supply chain, and I'm assuming you've been doing that for some time. How much of your supply chain, though, Chuck, is still in China? Well, you know, we, we actually operate in over 10 different countries around the world. And, and we, we don't go into specifics because on any given day, it could be any number. Uh, but we have, um, you know, suffice it to say that the, the amount that is coming into the U.S. is subject to tariffs is nominal because that's what we talked about at the end of the day. But we've been, our teams do this as part of their jobs. I mean, they do this on a regular basis based on risk mitigation, based on where are our component suppliers, the, the most cost-effective way to get the components into our supply chain. Uh, there's an element, obviously, of tax, and uh, all of those things come into play as we think about how we line up our supply chain. You talk about trade. We also think and talk a lot about Huawei. Mm -hmm. And one of the implications that everybody's wondering about is 5G. What impact does that have now? What impact does that have in the short term? How much do you worry that 5G deployment could really be derailed or slowed by all of these actions? You know, I, I actually don't worry about that. I think that uh, there are multiple suppliers around the world who provide macro radio technology. That's what we're talking about. And then once you get off the macro radio, I mean, we provide most all the technology in the core networks for our customers. And so 
I think there are plenty of alternatives, plenty of good alternatives out there. And uh, I think the bigger issue when you think about 5G and the deployments are the cost of capital mm. <laughs> to build out these networks, the cost to buy that, that our, our customers are having to face to buy spectrum, the, the regulatory environment. And, you know, what's the reality of uh, the business model that they can build to actually get the ROI on the investments they have to make to get there. I think those are the bigger things that we need to be talking about and working on. Well, and one thing I do want to also ask you is there's been a lot written that because of the ban on Huawei that it presents or creates an incredible opportunity for the likes of you and others. I've seen a number of about $5 billion in terms of a global market. Do you see that ban on Huawei as an opportunity for Cisco? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say uh, because, you know, we, we focus on our innovation and working with our customers and our customers in the large telcos and the large carriers around the world, they all tend to have multi-vendor strategies to begin with. So it's very difficult to ascertain when they increase volume with one versus the other. And, it, you know, what's the cause of that? And they, t they typically don't wouldn't tell us anyway. Right. Because they uh, they, they wouldn't want to give us any negotiating power. Right? But, I, but I do think <laughs> about 5G. I mean, you know this world so well in terms of the potential for it. And if Huawei is locked out of that market, I mean, once you start to create these networks and you are locked out as part of a piece of that supply chain, it's very hard to kind of change, right, over, you know, bring in a different supplier. So I do wonder about the longer this goes on, does it create more of an opportunity? for you guys well, because I, Huawei is kind of pushed to the I side. I think there are as the build whatever starts. the reasons are that a customer makes a franchise decision because they they do make franchise decisions. The big carriers have always done this. Uh, the large web scale providers they make architectural franchise decisions, and then once you if you don't get into those and this happens to us as well, then you're you're basically waiting for the next architectural transition for you to have an entry point. And, you know, I've talked publicly about the fact that we missed a couple of early waves in the in the web scale providers, and now we're having to work our way back in. Right. And I think that's just a fact of dealing in this space with these providers. So whether it's a security issue or whether it's a technology issue, if you if you miss a wave, then you're just going to have to wait for the next one. How long are those waves? Uh, usually they're, you know, somewhere five to ten years. I mean, yeah. They're, they're, they're so big. you can be locked out for a while. Right. And, when you we, and we feel it when it happens to us. Yeah, so. right. And when you think about 5G, I feel like when we talk to folks like you, we're talking about a massive leap forward in terms of the types of services, the types of things that we as consumers and businesses will be able to do. Help us understand what 5G looks like in our everyday lives. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, think about where you are today and what you can do with your mobile device versus what you could do, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, we take it all for granted today, but I mean, the capabilities that we have in our pockets on these devices are just monumentally different. And this is no different. You're going to see a step change. And this one is probably exponentially mm -hmm. even better than what we felt over the last decade or so. Uh, so when you talk about speeds of four, five, six, eight, ten times, I mean, the early use cases, I think, are going to be, you know, my 18-year-old son putting his phone in the middle of a table and having eight of his friends around and they're they're playing real-time gaming as that's serving as a hotspot for them but i mean the reality is is we're going to we should be able to deliver real-time health care into rural areas in ways that we haven't been able to getting getting speeds out into these environments because we can do it over spectrum as opposed to having to go pull fiber and run terrestrial circuits hopefully it will change the economics for our 
carriers on a global basis deliver education into rural parts of emerging countries. I mean, those are the kinds of applications in addition to IoT and all those things that uh, are out there. So lots of use cases. I love to know like timelines. So I'm curious what are some of the telecom customers are telling you about 5G deployment in terms of when we see it, right? We've been talking about it for a while. I guess we're starting to see it. Yeah, we're starting to see trials around the U.S. in particular. We're seeing trials around the world. Uh, And it really, there's a lot of uh, Issues related to spectrum availability. So Europe's got spec; they have spectrum auctions going on. Right. Uh, and uh, so once you have spectrum, then they start to build out. But what we see is a lot of the trials are implementing 5G radio technology, and then they're taking advantage of their existing backbone networks. And so I think 2020 and beyond, as they see these trials turn into more production, and you see more the number of devices at the edge of the network increasing, then that's going to lead to the need to build more core infrastructure to support the capacity that's going to be needed to move so all the So we're data. still building out a lot in 2020. We're still very early. This yeah. is multi-year, multi-multi-year. So 5G, clearly a huge part of your strategy going forward. Let's talk a little bit more about the business broadly. As you talk to your customers, news, headlines, worries aside, how are they feeling about their ability to spend, their ability to invest right now? You have such an amazing window into their sort of hopes and dreams. What are they telling you? Well, you know, what's really changed uh, in the world over the last 10, 15 years is the importance of technology. And with our customers, with, with business customers today or with governments around the world, I mean, our public sector business around the world has been incredibly strong. What is it? The reality for them is that technology is no longer some optional cost center. I mean, technology is now at the heart of the strategies that they're deploying, whether it's delivering citizen services in government or whether it's the way a bank interacts with their customers in the branch or how they think about the, the applications. But technology is in the middle of everything. So our, our customers don't I don't think they're at a point anymore where they say, oh, it's a little tough, so I think I'm going to slow my spending here. Because they, they, they think that if they do, then the competition is going to leverage technology to overtake them. Every company on the planet continues to think about a smaller company leveraging technology to disrupt them. So I think that, the, I mean, not, not saying that the tech industry is immune to a downturn by any stretch, because we're all subject to that. I just think technology is playing a much different role today than it has in the past. But it's interesting because IT spending has been a bit choppy, but you guys have really outperformed your peers. How How is that? Well, it's, I mean, I think that over the last several years, we've all benefited from a pretty strong global macro, and then we've had tax reform, which has obviously helped a lot of right. us. Right now, I think what our customers are looking at is they're they're really they've all begun this transition to the cloud mm-hmm. and it, it's a deeply technical discussion to have but what that has resulted in is a need to rearchitect all of their technology infrastructure to accommodate these new traffic patterns and new traffic flows and the security that's required today because if you think about it in its simplest terms, in their old world, all their applications sat in the middle of their data center, right. and they just needed to defend the perimeter. And now their applications are everywhere. Right. And so the, there is no perimeter. So the, the security has to be very dynamic, and it has to be in the network, and it has to be at the edge of the network. And so it's representing a lot of opportunity for us because they have to re-architect their networks. They have to re-architect their security. They're all looking at productivity and customer you know, intimacy. So our collaboration architecture has helped them a lot. So we're we're in a good spot right now. And as you say, those waves where you've got to protect yourself, right, are long ones. So if someone's 
working with you guys, you've got some transparency or visibility on that. Well, we have uh, we've been building a new security architecture for the last five to seven years in anticipation of this this transition. Our teams, I have to give them credit. They saw this coming. And so what we've done is built a cloud based aggregation of threat intelligence that really comes from any data source. So it can come from a mobile device. It can come from a Mm -hmm. computer. It can come from the network. It can come from email. And what happens is we aggregate it all and analyze it. And then we dynamically update the threat defenses around the world. And so it's a, it's a really unique architecture that uh, that's resonating with our customers today. So when you take a step back, uh, tell us what's the sort of toughest long-term challenge uh, that you're facing and sort of investing into right now? Well, there's the the irony for us is that five years ago, six years ago, there were seminal threats that were that were believed to be you know fatal to our company, and uh, what's turned out to be the, the the case is that we've actually embraced many of those ch- those shifts in the marketplace and turned them into advantages but also the transition to cloud that was viewed as being very negative has turned out to be very positive for us we find ourselves and in, why why is that because of what i just described yeah. because of the traffic yeah. right. it's not that everything stays the same yeah. as one of my my engineering leaders says we move the applications to the cloud we didn't move the the employees to the cloud right, right. so they still have to they still need an experience and they have connectivity issues and security issues um we find ourselves in, a, in an interesting spot where there's so many investment areas. We're, we're, our biggest challenge is prioritizing areas to invest right now, which is a good good place to be. Um, but I'd say that you know the the bigger thing I worry about right now is the geopolitical landscape mm-hmm. and how we navigate some of these complex issues over the next few years. Curious, what's the biggest mistake you've made in the last five years, and what <laughs> you've learned from it? Oh wow, the biggest mistake. Um, probably for me, it's. The times that I get in trouble is when I make an assumption about either where one of my leaders is relative to how they're feeling about things or believing that because you become an executive, you're no longer a human being. You know, Uh, I joke inside our company that uh, I joke there's still there's a little bit of middle school in everybody. Right. And so we all we're still human and we still have, you know, regardless of where you are in life. People still need a pat on the back. People still need to hear you're doing a great job. And uh, and sometimes I, I get very focused on execution, and, and you have to make sure you're, you're staying close to the teams. Uh, but I'm, I'm really proud of what we have, uh, what we've done in the company from a culture perspective. From a, there's, there's just a great energy right now. Uh, and, well, what uh, makes your culture distinct, the Cisco culture? Well, I'm not, I don't know how distinct it is. I think that in general, companies are made up of people who have – a desire to give back and to help other people. And I think that's true. Most people, you know, the headlines are filled with examples of bad behavior, but most people actually wake up every day and want to do good things. And we've just found a way to unleash that desire. And so what we've turned it into is really helping our employees understand that if you want to do those things that you love so much, we can empower you to do that as a company. We have the right to do that, but only if we're running a great business. Because if we're not running a great business, then we have to focus on making sure our shareholders and everybody are happy, and then and, and that might take away from our ability to do the things that we love. So run a great business, and we can continue to do this, and people are pretty excited about it. Got to ask you, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Oh, boy. Um, I, you know, I, I love 
coaching. I love uh, philanthropy. I love, you know, I, I always, I'm big into basketball, you know, even though my Tar Heels had a tough year. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had a good year, too, but, they, you know, right. they had a good if year we don't win the didn't. national championship, I, I feel like it was a tough year. Yeah. Is a CEO so. a form of a coach? It is. It is. I love what I'm doing, so I couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. I don't even know what I'll do one day when I'm not doing this, so it's very <laughs> difficult to think about what I would do. But uh, no, it is. You're well, running. Roy teams. Williams isn't going to be there forever. You know, I mean, that job could be open. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have those skills right now. I tell you, I'd need a lot of training. One last question: Best advice a mentor gave to you? Oh, you know, it's it's funny. I I think the um, I talk about to my kids and inside the company that cliches become cliches because they're true over time and people dismiss them. But I mean, the the power of teams in today's world is is real. And uh, and, you know, we have people roll their eyes when you start talking about basic issues of leadership. But I'm telling you, basic stay focused on the basics. And, you know, we talk about like John Wooden as a great coach when he was coaching the teams, he would have the players start by tie your shoes, untie your shoes, tie your shoes, untie your shoes. And, and it's just because you, you have to do the, the basics right before you can run the fancy plays. And so really focusing on the foundation, making sure you're doing all those things right every day. And don't get too enamored with complex strategy and all these things that people love to read about and talk about and just execute on the foundation. And those things will come. And I think that's what we've done over the last few years. Chuck Robbins, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.